Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Advent and Isaiah. It's our hope that as we spend time in this ancient text, we will get to know Jesus better this season. Thanks for joining us today. Let me invite you to take your Bible if you brought it with you. Hopefully you did. You can turn it to Isaiah chapter 53. If you do not have a Bible with you, if you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat underneath you there. And I'd love for you to follow along in this passage this morning. You can find it on page 600 in those black Bibles. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a, a long time, during this Advent season, as we've been preparing ourselves for Christmas, we've been spending time in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And the reason for that, if you're following on your notes with me this morning, is because the book of Isaiah, more than any other te- Old Testament prophet, Isaiah points to the coming of Messiah. Isaiah points more than any Old Testament prophet to the coming of Messiah. And over the last three weeks, if you've been with us, it's become evident that Isaiah sees in the distance someone is coming, someone who will bring us hope, someone who will bring light into the darkness, someone who will bring us peace and shalom. We've seen hints and shadows of this figure throughout this series. But today, as we look at the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the Messiah will step out in full and glorious view. I got to tell you, the first time I read through the Bible, I was in high school, and it took me about two and a half years uh, to get through it. And I remember coming to this passage as a high school student, thinking to myself, this is way too cool. Either the New Testament writers are pulling a trick on us, or this is the most amazing passage I've read yet as I slogged my way through the Old Testament, right? I hope you will experience that kind of amazement this morning as well, because listen, it's going to be hard for you to understand how Isaiah could write these words 700 plus years before Jesus comes on the scene, because Jesus is everywhere in this text. And while this is probably not considered a typical Christmas passage, I chose to speak on it today because it answers the most important question we can ask at Christmas, which is why was Jesus born? Why is Christmas such a big deal? Now, there's obviously a lot of answers to that, but the one I want to focus on with you this morning is that Jesus was born to bleed. Jesus was born to bleed. Christmas is not just about a baby in a manger. It's what that baby comes for and what he will accomplish, what he will grow up and do on our behalf. And that is what Isaiah 53 focuses on. He's going to lay it all out for us. Now, the truth is, this passage actually starts in chapter 52, starting in verse 13. So if you just need to turn back a tiny bit, go ahead and do that. And as we're reading this, even if you're a young one in the room today, I want you to start making connections between this and the gospel story that we're going to read later in the New Testament, right? You can be a sleuth right now and discover, wow, this is incredible that these were written 700 years before Jesus. So let's pick it up. Isaiah is writing about a person named the suffering servant, starting in verse 13, and says this, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Let's just pause here a moment. What do you see already in these verses? The suffering servant of the Lord is to be highly exalted, right? And yet, in these verses, he is not. That's not people's first reaction to him. The first thing we notice about the suffering servant is, well, he looks like he's suffering. Particularly, he's suffering on a cross. In this passage, Isaiah is referring to what the priests would do back in the day. For example, when a leper was to be cleansed, a priest would sprinkle blood on that leper to show that his disease had washed him clean. He was healthy now. He could be accepted back into the community. And what Isaiah is referring to here is that this suffering servant will spill his blood and it will be sprinkled on moral lepers to make them clean. He will wash people with his blood. In fact, I hope you notice there, the sprinkling of his blood is pure enough and lavish enough to cleanse, quote, many nations. He will touch the unwashed, the unclean, the outsiders with his blood, making them fit for God 700 years before Jesus came. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, would you read verse three out loud on your notes there with me? It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Does this sound at all familiar? If you were here last week, this is a reference to the passage that Chuck preached on, right? Describing this coming savior as a shoot that will come out from the stump of Jesse in dry ground. Now, personally, in this passage, I think this may be a reference to those obscure years that Jesus spent in a carpenter shop. Nobody understanding who he truly was except his heavenly father. He came as a root to grow out of the dry ground. He was despised. He was rejected. Did this happen? Do you think he was despised and rejected, this suffering servant? Brian talked about in the first week of this series, right? Another reference to Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. Can you imagine how that went down in Jesus' community? Oh, you're the guy who was born of a virgin, right? Your mom is the one who broke his marriage vow. I'm sure he was despised and rejected as a young child. Later in his life, this continued, right? His own brothers misunderstood him. They were embarrassed by some of the things Jesus said and Jesus did. He was called a drunkard and a glutton by some. He was referred to to be possessed by a demon at one point. He was even called a Samaritan by others. That was a disparaging and racist term. Isaiah sees all of this 700 years before it happens. If you're on your notes, he was rejected by the very people who should have recognized him. And this is because if you're still following, we judge by outward appearances. 
But Jesus did not come to be impressive at that level. He doesn't care about false appearances the way we do. Isaiah describes him like a root coming out of dry ground. This unpromising person, nothing special to look at, is to grow out of this failed nation, this dry ground where no life can be found. Now, I want us to just pause here and notice something extremely important throughout the rest of this passage. Did you notice that Isaiah uses the we language in these verses, right? Real simple question for you. Was Isaiah there when Jesus came? Absolutely not. So why would he say we? Were we there when Jesus came? Absolutely not. So why does he use this third person plural? Well, this is the point of Christmas. This is the point of the gospel. Do not miss this. You must understand this. Even though you and I were not eyewitnesses to the coming of Jesus, you must come to the point where you would realize, I would not have admired him either. I would have not looked upon him in any way different than the people there would have looked upon him. Listen, not even his miracles made the kind of impact that we think they should have made. You remember his disciples, his closest friends, what they do when Jesus faced the cross? They ditched him. When he traveled around Israel, it wasn't like in the movies. Jesus didn't have this holy glow all about him. The Samaritan woman had no idea who she was talking to. Did you know even John the Baptist questioned whether Jesus really was who he said he was? Jesus just wasn't special in the ways we count as special today, right? We celebrate things like beauty and fame and money and power. But if we were there, we too would have shunned Jesus as one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. The question is, why would Jesus do this? Why would he become so low? If you're following on your notes, he had to become low like us for us to become like him. He became a root out of dry ground because all of us are dry ground. We are without life. We are without hope. As Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18 so wonderfully says, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, dry ground. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Praise God. He became low on our behalf so that we could become high with him. That leads to the heart of this text. What did this suffering servant do? Look at verse four. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Now read verses five and six on your notes with me. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'll finish. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Everybody remember when he stood before Pilate and the religious leaders and he said nothing? Because he didn't need to defend himself. He was without sin. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one. Even his closest friends walked away from him. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Again, guys, this is incredible. 733 years before, Isaiah sees that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea would Give Jesus his own grave. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Read that sometime a little bit slower because this right here is the heart of our faith. It is the heart of the gospel. Jesus took our place. As Peter notes in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his own body upon a tree. Another way to say this, if you're following on your notes, is that Jesus lived up to the name he was given, the name the angel told Mary and Joseph to name him, the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. What does he save us from? He saves us from sin. Sin is a disease that has afflicted our entire human race. And you cannot understand the depth of human sin until you see the terrible agony that Jesus faced and passed through for us. The agony that led him to cry out in the hours of darkness, this terrible orphaned cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, listen, I would make a bet that most of us think of ourselves as pretty decent, good people. We have not done, perhaps, some of the terrible things that other people have done. But listen, when you look to the cross of Jesus, what you see there is the evil in our hearts. And you have to come to understand that sin is a disease that has infiltrated my entire life. We were created in the image of God. That means we bore all of God's glory. And yet, we have become bruised and marred. We have become sick and broken. Our consciences have been ruined. Our wills to do right has become weak. Our resolve has been undermined. And we don't want to hear that today, especially in the United States of America. There was a time when if I said sin, everybody would nod their head and say, yes, not today. Nobody wants to hear that I have sin in my life, but I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we know this is true. And so no wonder when these verses are read, it comes as the best news. Listen, he was wounded for your transgressions. The bruising he felt was the punishment we deserved. Our sin was laid upon him. Theologians call this miracle substitution. Jesus became our substitute. In the past, if you've read the Old Testament, it's a little weird, right? It's through these animal sacrifices that are offered over and over and over again that those animals are the substitute for the payment of our sin, but they're never permanent. As the writer of Hebrews says, these sacrifices were only an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away 
sin. Thank God that wasn't the final solution. Thank God he shows us 700 years before it happens that behold, the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away, not temporarily, but permanently, the sins of the world. If you're following, he is our substitute for the permanent forgiveness of sin. He did what I can't do. He did what you cannot do. And you can lay a hold of that personally by simply admitting what it says in verse six. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way. Friends, I have turned away from what God designed my life to be. I need a substitute, someone to step into my place. Again, we don't like that. You know what we like? We like Frank Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way. That sounds much more admirable, doesn't it? Sounds like that's what we want to copy. It's the American mentality down to a song lyric. But when you turn to scripture, you find out actually that's the problem, doing it your way. The solution is doing it his way. The way to lay hold of the redemption of Jesus is to simply admit, I did it my way. And it's led me to shame and guilt and fear and confusion and exhaustion. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, including mine. He's my substitute. And it's because of me he's on that cross. Have you recognized that? It's because of you that he's on that cross. Some of you may not be into art. I got to travel through Europe and saw a lot of art. And one of the paintings that stood out to me was this one by Rembrandt. It's called Rembrandt. It's called The Raising of the Cross. And what stands out to me, this is just a small portion of it, is that Rembrandt drew himself in the painting. That's him. Because he recognized something you must come to recognize at some point in your life. You cannot say, if I had been there, I would not have crucified him. No, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We would have crucified him as well. In fact, we did. And that is the heart of Isaiah's message. Please don't miss this. What he's saying is, why is Jesus a man of sorrows? We read that, right? Because they weren't his own sorrows. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. In a way we don't understand, Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. God shifted our blame to Jesus. He died for guilty people. God pointed the finger at Jesus and he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Every bad thing you have ever done, I have ever done, he bore on that cross for me. Theologians, again, you want a really fancy word, call this imputation, which just is a way of saying, right? to charge to someone's account. Guilt must be paid for. It cannot be swept under the rum. You understand this, right? Even on a basic level, let's say you get in a fender bender. Somebody's got to pay for it. There's a cost that needs to be paid for it. Maybe you or maybe be the person that bumped into you. But if it's going to be put right, somebody has to pay the cost. And so it is with God. There is no way he can turn a blind eye to all the evil that is done to his perfect, good universe. So how did God confront it? How was the damage paid for? Did he take it out on us? No, if you're following out of love for us, 
God charged our debt to his son. Some of you have probably heard that famous story. It's been told by preachers for 50 plus years now. True story of a young man who got an expensive speeding ticket. He comes to the court and his dad is the judge in this court. And he declares him guilty, guilty as charged. And then the story goes, he literally steps down from out of the judge's chair, takes off his judge robe and then writes a check to pay for his son's debt. That is the gospel. God stepped down as judge and entered into our world and charged our debt to his son. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Can we read this out loud together? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're on your notes, Jesus was born to bleed because God wouldn't leave us condemned. He planned from ages past to send a suffering servant, not just a model love for us, which many people, they look at Jesus today and that's what they conclude. Oh, he's a wonderful model of love. Uh, Yes, he is. But he also came to bear our sins as a substitute for us. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is the heart of Christianity. This is what makes Christianity different than any other religion in this world. Instead of us making our way up to God through our good deeds and our good works, Jesus Christ came down to us, which is what we celebrate on Christmas, and said, I'll take that. You lay your iniquities upon me on that cross. He came to bleed. He came to die in our place. He came to die for your sin because our own acts of righteousness can never lead us to holiness. This is our only hope. And starting with the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, the New Testament, is all about how this happened and how it affects your life now and forever. I've been reading uh, classic novels the last couple of years. I know you must think I'm a total bore. I've been really enjoying it. And by far, one of the best ones I read this year was called A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. How many of you were forced to read that in high school? It's worth reading again. It basically tells the story of the French war, right? The, uh, um, the French Revolution. And it's a story about these people who get themselves involved in them. And one of them is named Sidney Carton. He's one of the main characters of this book. And at the end of this book, he takes the place of one of his friends and heads to the guillotine on his behalf. And while he's there, this is the part that really stands out to me. He meets this young woman who's extremely afraid. And she realized what he had done. And she looks at him and these words, she tells him, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Can you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I think you were sent to me, to me by heaven. So I'll say to you, look to him today. Look to him this year by faith. Look at him sent to heaven, sent from heaven to you there on that cross. What is he saying to you right now? by his sacrifice. Good news of great joy for all men and all women. Come to me, all who labor, all who are striving, and I will give you rest. Could you use some rest this year?
I've come to take your burdens. I've come to take your sin. I've come to take your shame. I've come to take your fear. I've come to take your guilt upon myself. I was sent to you by heaven. Pick it up in verse 10 because the connection to Jesus gets even more incredible here. Yet it was the Lord's will. Another word for that, it was God's plan all along. We see it in Genesis 3 to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What might that be talking about? Anybody heard of the resurrection? Now read verse 11 and the first part of verse 12 out loud. With me it says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. I'll finish. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Can you get over this? Can you believe this was written 700 years before the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ as the victorious king of all? Again, I want you to notice the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is more than a human plot. This was God's divine plan from the very beginning. We're told in Romans 3.25 that he was doing the will of God by offering his life as a substitute for your sin. And what's amazing to me is he's not embittered by it. He didn't hang from his cross screaming curses at his tormentors the way other victims did, nor did he blaspheme God. It says for the joy that was set before him, joy, he endured the cross. Isaiah says, his reward is he will see his offspring. That's the joy he looked forward to. Who are his offspring? Any of you who have received him as your substitute for your sin. This is the mystery of the cross of Christ. It's on an instrument of human torture that Jesus Christ made his soul an offering to God for other people's sins because that was the only way to victory over sin and death. If you're on your notes, the cross was no defeat. It was the fulfillment of God's plan. As Jesus stands back and looks at God's saving plan, as he measures the price he had to pay for its success, how does Jesus feel about it? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. If you're following, Jesus' anguish led to a victorious joy for him and us. Notice too, at the end of verse 12, he shares in his victory with what the New Testament calls you, if you are a believer in Jesus, his co-heir. All the spoils of his victory are shared together with us, his people. How can this be? Because he's the kind of God and the kind of person who enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt and accounting them as righteous, though it cost him everything. This Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried as the Apostles' Creed says, also rose again from the dead, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father in victory as king of the world, as king of the universe. One day, all knees will bow and declare him, Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah sees this 700 years before it would happen. He sees, he's not suffering anymore. 
His offering for sin was complete for you and for me. And right now today, all over the world, he is enjoying the satisfaction, Isaiah says, of people who realize who he is and what he's done because it was for the joy of you that he endured the cross to make ungodly people righteous and pure and clean with hope and with life in this world. Everybody knows today, God punishes bad people and rewards good people, right? That's how it works. That's his job. Wrong. The gospel says God justifies ungodly people. What does that mean? God loves to declare guilty people innocent. That's, that's crazy. Doesn't make sense in our minds, right? We're used to the other thing. I need to justify myself in order to be made right. Why do you think we fight so hard to be right in our closest relationships? Because we know how it works. I gotta justify myself in this situation. I gotta make sure they know that I'm right. But no matter how good or right we try to be, we all like sheep have gone astray, amen? We all like sheep have gone astray. This is what Paul calls the scandal of the cross. God accepts unacceptable people. God honors shameful people. God treats fools with royal dignity as Jesus steps into your place and bears his, our guilt upon himself. That's how God the judge becomes our justifier. And if God forgives you, isn't that enough to stop trying to prove yourself to him, to others? You know, the only barrier to receiving this freshness, this joy, and this forgiveness is by clinging to your own righteousness. That's the only barrier to say, oh no, I did it my way and I'm gonna do it the right way. And one day I'll stand before God and only say, really good. That's the number one barrier to receiving this life free from sin and free from death. So what about it? What about you this Christmas? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I promise you, no gift under that tree right now will be better than the gift that he is offering you this morning. You can respond one of two ways in this mess to this message, in my opinion. One response is to reject the gift and simply say, this can't be true. It can't be this simple. I know too many people who think of themselves with so much shame and guilt, they think, well, God, I gotta clean myself up before God will receive me. Or he doesn't know all the bad things that I've done in my life. It reminds me of that old song. You remember, oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. You guys remember that one? I heard Joan Baez sing that once. And at the end of this song, as she's trailing off, literally she says these words, if only it were that simple. Whew. Listen, Isaiah doesn't think it's simple. Jesus sure did not think it was easy. The suffering servant of the Lord did the most costly thing ever. He bore our sin on his back so we didn't have to bear it ourselves. And of course, listen, don't mishear me. We shouldn't ignore all the things we can make right in this world. The gospel is not cheap grace. It calls us to live out the new life we've been given in obedience and faith. This is how we revere Jesus. Thank him for the gift that he gives. Never understand, mistake. Obedience is part of the gospel. It's part of following Jesus, but don't mess up the order. You receive the gift of faith. You don't prove yourself through obedience to him. And so that's the other response to the gospel. Receive it by faith, like a child with open hands, 
saying, I don't deserve this, but you're giving it to me. Stop trying to accumulate your imagined righteousness. Did you know 11 chapters later in Isaiah, he calls all of our attempts to be good, filthy rags to the Lord. Those things are only gonna make it worse if you think that is what is gonna make you righteous before him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with open hands, and I will give you rest. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what Christmas is pointing to. Paul sums it up in the best way possible in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, our substitute Jesus Christ on his cross, not by work so that no one can boast. Take your sins to Jesus, your substitute, your offering, and become his son, his daughter. He will be satisfied and receive the promise this morning, if you've never done that, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. Amen and amen. At that point on that day, when you make that decision, you can truly sing those words, oh, happy day. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sin away. Let's pray. Oh, what a savior. What a God. Lord, it's so easy to just get into the routine of Christmas. I think we're so familiar with these words. So we need a reminder what this really means. It costs you everything. God with us, Emmanuel, born a baby, born in human flesh, becoming so low so that one day we could be made so high that we could become your sons and daughters in Christ. We praise you. You are our substitute. We praise you that you justified us even when we did not deserve it. We praise you that you came to bleed on our behalf. For those of us who have received that message here, Lord, may this be a reminder of the good news of great joy. I know many of us are just in a season of discouragement right now. Encourage us, for you have laid upon yourself the iniquity of us all. We confess like sheep we go astray often, but that will never take away what you have done for us on the cross. For those who are with us this morning online in this room who have yet to make this decision, today could be a happy day because you enjoy nothing more than washing our sins away. So I invite them right now to acknowledge, to repent. It's just another word. Like a sheep, I've gone astray. I did it my way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, including me. I believe that today. I trust that today. I receive that gift of salvation today. By faith, through grace, you can be saved right now. Receive the gift. Lord, as we head into this week, help us not to forget that Christmas is all about you. It's all about the fact that you became a human being. You became so low so that we could become so high exalted with you, victorious, sitting with the king.
king of the universe forever and ever. In Jesus Christ's name, everybody agreed and said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.